When a British ship is sunk in foreign waters, the world's superpowers begin a feverish race to find its cargo, a nuclear submarine control system. 007 is thrust into one of his most riveting adventures as he rushes to join the search and prevent global devastation. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 24th of June 1981 and across the USA just two days later. Fiora's Only is the 12th James Bond film. It cost $28 million to make and brought in $194.9 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Roger Moore and directed by John Glenn for the first time, the vital statistics are Conquests 2, Martinis 0, Kills 11, Bond James Bonds 2. Back in 1981, Variety said, Fiora's only bears not the slightest resemblance to the Ian Fleming novel of the same title, but emerges as one of the most thoroughly enjoyable of the 12 Bond pictures to date, despite the fact that many of the usual ingredients in the successful formula are missing. So to discuss Fiora's only, I'm joined this week by Sean Longmore, Luella Chapman, and Tom Butler. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, yes, uh, I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a uh, graphic designer and artist, and sometimes I do kind of Bondy art on poetry stuff. Hi, I'm Luella, and I'm the author of Fashioning James Bond, Costume, Gender and Identity in the World of 007. And I'm Tom Butler. I'm a film uh, journalist and the co-host of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Great stuff. So um, we're going to open up with the first category, which is the one with. So what is the motif that you could hang your hat on for this film? Uh, whether that's what you would put on a minimalist poster or if you closed your eyes, the one thing that you see or hear when you think of your eyes only, how would you describe this film in one sentence to a casual moviegoer? So for your eyes only, and this is a tough one, is the one with, and who wants to take a first step at that? I'm going to jump straight in because I don't want to get (laughs) dumped on this one. It's the the gritty Roger Moore film. That's the only thing I've got. Um, And epitomizing that it's the one where he kicks the car off the cliff right it's that's mm. the moment that appears in the in the bond trailers in the 50th anniversary 60th anniversary, whatever like the montage this is the one where roger moore stands on the edge of the cliff and kicks the car off it and that epitomizes the gritty tone of this film which was uh you know of course a reset for the series after moonraker um so for me this is that's that's the only hook for this film. It's the gritty Roger Moore film. Mm. All right. Sean Luella, did you have a backup? Um, oh, I, I, <laughs> mine, I guess I'm kind of cheating and a little bit following on from that, but this is the one for me that feels like an 80s TV movie. Um, this feels like Oof. James Bond does The Professionals, and I, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily think that's always a bad thing, um, but this, I don't know, this kind of feels like the most Sunday afternoon Bond just for me um and that it, it feels very it feels very british in just like the way it's filmed the way it's shot i don't know what it is it's filmed with the same cameras and film stock as moonraker but there's something that feels almost a little bit small scaled refined in how this film looks visually and how it sort of comes across despite costing 28 million dollars to make. yeah yeah <laughs> I, I i i don't know i i genuinely and i think cal i think i've Calvin's mentioned this before, but I just don't know. There's something about how this film looks and how it's presented that feels smaller scale, and I'm not sure what it is. I think particularly the casino sequence is a good example of that, where it does look like it does very sleazy. It does look like like ITV uh, Mm -hmm. drama. That's it. it. This is the ITV Bond film. There you go. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Luella, uh, how would you describe this one as a motif? 
Well, just riffing off of uh, what other people have said, you know, in terms of the, the TV bond. You know, this is one of the first Bond films that actually employs a costume designer, Elizabeth Waller, who actually comes from television training. Um, so that's just quite interesting. Um, but I would definitely say this is like, you know, Bond coming into the 80s. We have a new tailor for Roger Moore, uh, Douglas Hayward. Um, and we also have a hell of a lot of loose on jackets, you know, a lot of casual wear in this Bond, which fits in with this TV theme that we're talking about. I guess it's low stakes as well, right? I mean, it's kind of that adds to the element of it. Not going um, to the DVD blurb. It's like the world's going to end right. <laughs> with riveting action. The ATAC is like, it's just a, it's just a MacGuffin, isn't it? I think it's not, it's not like, I don't know. I, I feel it's low stakes in, in that sense. It's an interesting one because wasn't For Your Eyes only supposed to be um, the one that was filmed after The Spy Who Loved Me, but then they chose Moonmaker because of the yes, because obvious, of Star Wars. You, know, uh, yeah. you know, going into space. And, you know, Cubby Broccoli very much describes this as coming back down to Earth. And I think we are literally coming back down to Earth so much so that, you know, we're getting TV dinner bond, perhaps. Yeah, I, I would say it's the one with the most Fleming until Casino Royale in 2006. Yeah, that's a fair point. Hmm? For good I, or for I, bad. I, I just got to ask, you mentioned the ATAC there. Um, at the time, I, I don't know if any of you guys, I don't know, I'm sorry if I'm assuming you guys are a lot older than you are. I don't mean to imply it, but anyone who's listening, it, was the ATAC high tech? Because it really does just look like a sort of knockoff Commodore 64. <laughs> well, yes, the Commodore 64 came out in 81, didn't it? Can't remember. Oh, um, I'm not sure. Tom? We can reveal to the audience that you're exactly the same age as the ZX Spectrum. So, <laughs> right? But yes, apparently so. Yes, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's around about that, Sean. It's it's it's, it's bang on. I, um, I, I, I'm just like, it, did that really look like a mega sophisticated bit of spyware at the time? Is that what spyware looked like, or does it actually just look like someone's painted a Commodore 64? <laughs> the identigraph looks kind of high tech, doesn't it? Oh, with yeah, all it's I mean, like that... words and when he's putting all the stuff. <laughs> and the red light in the room, yeah, <laughs> and the, the graphics. Um, that seems more high tech than the ATAC. Yeah, I mean, those that mass storage database kind of stuff would have been super expensive and they would have had a dedicated room for it at the time. So at the time it's cutting edge, but now it kind of looks a bit laughable, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I always wondered how Bond knew which cartridge reel to go and pick off the shelf. Um, when Q tells him to, to go and get it, it's like, how did he know? Um, maybe maybe he just picked the one that was marked octagonal glasses, people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he was wearing octagonal glasses. Fantastic. So, um, which is funny because the scene's reversed a few films later on A View to Kill where Zorin uses a computer and types in Bond's features and characteristics to determine who he is, right? Yes. All right, so Bond cocktail. Um, Bond films are usually called a formula. Here are some ingredients. We've got teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond, action, locations, dialogue, and the loosey-goosey style category. Um, Which of these ingredients in the cocktail to you is somehow unique and particular to this film and why? And it could be for a positive or a negative reason. Who would like to pick an ingredient for the Bond cocktail for for Fioros only? Uh, So for me, this one, I'm, I'm going with action. Um, and I want to highlight the stunt work in this film because there is yeah. some 
truly brilliant stunt work that goes off and some stuff uh, it kind of this film kind of does that thing that the mission impossible films do now and there's there there's all these stunt works particularly stuff like the helicopter or the ski chase or the rock climb at the end where you watch it and you think oh that actually looks quite simple and easy but then when they make it look easy it's it's so good that it looks easy but it's ridiculously dangerous um like the um i i sorry i don't know any stuntman names there's a great uh podcast out there beyond the stunts who kind of dives into bond stunts a little bit more um but um the helicopter sequence at the beginning i love a helicopter and the the fact Mm -hmm. that half of that the stuntman did a lot of that on the skid of the helicopter without wires like he was oh, just, God. he was literally just hanging there. And that's why he's got his arm in the window or he's, he's full on dangling. And it's this, it, that is high. And when you think about it, that is really dangerous. Even sort of having a guy sat in the wheelchair when he's picked up by the skid. And it, it's something that it kind of looks nonchalant in this film. And again, I don't know if that comes back to how the whole tone of the film is scaled down a little bit. Right. But it's the stunt work that is incredibly impressive. And I think previous to this, the stunt stuff had kind of kicked off with Spy Who Love Me and both Spy Who Love Me and Moonraker have stunt openers where there's one really impressive stunt and one stunt where you, your jaw kind of drops. This one, I think throughout the whole movie, they're kind of littered in and this kind of sets the bond on a more stunt-orientated sequ- sort of um, pattern, I guess, where sequences have... Um, impressive smaller scale stunts and you're going from one Mm. stunt sequence to one stunt sequence rather than going from one action-packed big explosive sequence to another that's a really good shirt sean something that people say about john glenn isn't it how he is a action and obviously started off in second unit but how how he's he's great with the action Mm -hmm. um and yeah i think this film is technically brilliant in 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 that sense um and yeah, John Glenn really knows how to make a, a, an action sequence work. He knows how to shoot them. He knows how to be economical with it all. Um, and yeah, I think that's um, definitely something that carries through in the rest of his films as well. I, th- I think to mm. me, what's most impressive is is just the way that it does feel so nonchalant. And it's kind of, there, there's a lot of sequence stunt sequences in this that kind of don't get mentioned a lot, a lot among Bond circles. Like, and we kind of take them for granted, like the Citroen C2V chase. That thing takes a battering, and they really mm. do some impressive work in that. But it, 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 it's almost like I don't, I don't know what it is. There's something about this movie where it just kind of it's like, oh yeah, there's a chase in the Citroen C2V. Is it you know? Is it is it the soundtrack, um, lessening the tension and t- to some of the sequences, there's gags thrown in that lessen the uh, the tension maybe or the danger. Perhaps it's that I don't think it's the soundtracks. I like I do like Conti, and I think the music is often very fast paced. Uh, I do part of me does wonder if it's the editing because this film has a lot of cutting back to insert shots. Um, so there'll be a lot of cutbacks to Roger in studio against rear projection, for example, the stunt sequences in this one, they right. kind of, they kind of really go all out, go all out, go all out on that this film, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. They're just, there's these really impressive stunt sequences that I think don't get as much credit as they deserve. Um, and that, that for me is the highlight of this movie is how sort of hardcore some of it is. Uh, Tom, 
what would you like to pick for your bun cocktail uh, ingredient? Um, for me, I'm going a little bit off script here, but um, for me, the the unique or one of the most unique ingredients about this film is its poster. Um, it's the iconic mm. uh, legs poster, um, and I think uh, it really. I, but for me, it's one of the most memorable elements of the of the movie, um, and that's maybe uh, gives a little bit away about how I feel about this film later on. But um, <laughs> I do think this is one of the best posters in the whole of James Bond history um, for how iconic it is. Um, and if you don't remember, it's the it's the two legs, and you've got Roger Moore in the middle, and then you've got the um, uh, the crossbow hanging down. Um, but it's just become again very synonymous with the Bond brand and also with the spy brand and, and, and has been aped many times by other films looking to capture a spy movie feel. You know, Kingsman, mm-hmm. for example, the first Kingsman film had a, a, basically a shot for shot copy of that um, poster. Uh, I think it was designed by Bill Gold. Um, Sean, you'll probably know better than I would. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yes. Uh, um, and then I. You- and then I, I think possibly Brian Bysouth painted it for the UK market. Um, yes, it, it yeah. was a Bysouth painting because they'd just come off the back of um, Moonraker, which is obviously massively sort of, it has that kind of painted detail. So they do a similar thing here, but the legs were photographed before they were drawn. Yeah. Um, for a long time, people didn't know who the model was um, at the legs. And I think it, it was someone... That someone Joy- came forward in the end, didn't they? Yes. Uh, here we got 22-year-old model, Joyce Bartle. Um, there we go. New York. And there was – there's. It, I highly recommend anyone go out and look at all the sort of variations of this poster of how it was altered for different markets because in yes. some international markets they put sort of denim shorts on her. In some they put like gym shorts on her. Um, there's a lot of different variations of legs. Um, and I don't – there'll be someone who knows better than me um, I don't know if this was the first sort of big Hollywood movie to do a Between the Legs poster, which then has kind of become a poster trope now. There's a lot of a lot of rom-coms did it in the 2000s. Like you can see there's compilations of them all online. There's lots and lots. That shot has become really quite iconic, even outside of Bond circles. But I'm glad you said that. It's a fantastic poster. I think yeah. we'll, we'll file that under the... Style category, Tom. Style, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, obviously the famous thing about the poster as well, and and, and the legs being shot with that they put, made the photographer made the model where the neck is back, neck is backwards, mm-hmm. um, so that they could uh, get more flesh on the. Um, <laughs> yes, they get more flesh on the uh, on the poster, but um, yeah. But then so. of course it, it's it's also it's just it's be remiss of us not to say that it's actually just it's a wonderful framing device for all the lovely sort of painted elements that are around. So you have uh, there's bonds from the helicopter. There's I think there's a boat blowing up with the airplane attack at the start. Uh, there's some divers. The Citroen makes it on there. Um, the ski chase. So it, it it it's a very sort of clever way of partitioning and highlighting Bond on his own. I guess it's almost like a Western, isn't it, stance, that sort of, yes. um, I guess that's possibly where it comes from. But uh, yeah, I think it's just a terrific poster and probably one of the most, probably the best part of the film for me, I would say. Good stuff. All right, Luella, what, would, what ingredient would you like to pick, good or bad, for Furies Only that's particularly uh, important for this film? I'm, gonna t- I'm going to pick a good and a bad one on the same theme, and that's women. Okay. 
Um, I think Melina Havelock, played by Carol Bouquet, is wonderful. Um, you know, I think she particularly exemplifies um, Fleming's Judy Havelock in his own short story. Um, I particularly love that image of her in her camouflage outfit and her crossbow, and I think she's she's really wonderful to watch. Um, you know, and then we go from the absolutely divine uh, <laughs> to to the other end of the scale, and this is no fault of of Lynn Holly Johnson, but we go to Michael Wilson's uh, imagination in the character of BB Doll, uh, who's almost just included in the script just to prove that Roger Moore does not have to do every single woman he meets uh, mm. in order to uh, uh, save the, save himself and uh, his country. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. And I wondered what the rest of you thought of the character of B.B. Dahl, actually, um, in terms of how she's utilised in, in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I don't think she makes much much of an impact on the film other than being quite a silly character. Uh, I don't feel like her plot goes anywhere with it. Um, I think I quite like the inter- interplay between her and Bond, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan. I've got to say. I mean, I, I felt a bit sorry really for for BB because she doesn't really have any narrative agency. You know, when I was rewatching through the film, you know, the the actress is really fun and and lovely, and she's a, obviously a brilliant ice skater, and you know, uh, and she's actually not needed. You know, and you you when you read through the script of it. You're sort of like, well, why, why is she being included here? You know, is this just, you know, the three women formula that we're going with? Or, you know, she's not mm. practically, yeah, really contributing anything. And the information that she does give Bond could actually be got easy, quite easily elsewhere, you know. Yeah, I do wonder if it, a lot of it was kind of lost, that the whole idea of Christatos being, you know, a bit creepy to her didn't make the final film. It's implied, right? But it's mm. it's very mm. subtle um, that that would kind of like make turn the audience against him, right? Which is what you need to happen in this film, um, considering he's he's presented as a good guy for the first half. <laughs> so maybe that was the reason she was in there. I don't know, but it didn't it didn't really wasn't really executed that well. I don't think. I I think the something that's always struck me about BB is that she's kind of a character that sort of feels like she was written after the plot. Whereas typically with a lot of James Bond films, you can kind of look back and they've got obviously gone, right, we need James Bond and he's going to have this female character and this female character is going to do this, this female character is going to do this, and then the scriptwriter has gone away and written it. Whereas BB kind of feels like she's there because we've got the Winter Olympics saying, so we need that ice skating sort of. We need it. She kind of doesn't feel like she has a purpose outside of selling us what's sort of the setting and the plot of the movie um and she did her character just doesn't like you say feel fleshed out i guess yeah it's superfluous mm-hmm. to the film like you could take her out as you say the well you could take her out of the film and does it change anything no i don't think so is that, am i right thinking lynn holly uh is it lynn holly johnson she had been yeah. she just had a big hit with another movie yes uh, ice castles that was it yeah and this sometimes happens with Bond films, doesn't it? Is is that they cast someone who's just become very famous very quickly? I'm just trying to. I can't think of any other examples right now. Terry but, Hatcher. Um, Terry Hatcher. Yeah. Um, and also, oh God, my memory's terrible. Goldeneye. Um, Isabella Skrupko. 
Yes, there you go. See, um, but hadn't she just had a number one hit as well in like Scandinavia, and that's how she ended up being in the film, something like that. Anyway, my point is, is that Lynn Holly Johnson feels like one of those where they've gone, oh, this would be good to have in the Bond film, and it's going to be ice skating. But um, that's a, that's all I've got, <laughs> um, and it, therefore it, she ends in the film. It, it's interesting though. On the flip side of that, that kind of casting has worked several times throughout Bond because she could. I suppose argue that Honor Blackman and Diana Rigg were cast yeah. Yeah. for the same reason. Yeah. But they were integral to the plot though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To your point. Okay. Um, this might be a tough one for a couple of you. Um, underappreciated element. Um, what thing, big or very, very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch Fioras Only that you think is underappreciated? I'll get in quickly before anyone. Well, um, I think that it's the wonderful uh, Raymond Ravis dresses that were designed uh, for Carol Bouquet um, and Cassandra Harris's characters in the film. Um, and that you briefly see them in the, the casino scene, but they're also included more prominently in the promotional materials. And I know we've already mentioned those uh, materials, you know, with the wonderful legs playing and Roger Moore in between them. Um, you know, Raymond Ravis in particular is the last film that she worked on. Uh, having designed gowns from 1929. So I just wanted to, you know, wow. highlight those beautiful moments in that film. Uh, I think they're particularly stunning. Excellent. Tom or Sean? Uh, well, I, I, was, I, was, I was originally going to say the poster, and we've been there. I, I kind of want to say the soundtrack, because I do enjoy the soundtrack, but I always say the soundtrack on these things. <laughs> so for this one, I think I, I might have to say General Golgol here. And I think the fact that he in this movie goes back to being sort of bad guy framed as a bad guy. Um, yes. His character sort of suddenly has some weight and sort of feels a bit threatening and ominous. And I quite like that they've played with this character and gone, well, you've seen him be a good guy in ways before, but he is, he is essentially who we're playing against. So I, I think his inclusion and in kind of how they spin him around and how they utilize him in this film is great. And then the ending wrap up, that little sequence um, where, where he flies him in the helicopter at the end, I think it's again, I guess it's that ticking clock kind of thing there. But yeah, I like General Goggle in this film. It's funny that you'd send the head of the KGB out to a rock to pick up an ATAC <laughs> instead of an Asian. But then again, M goes everywhere. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe so, he was like, well, they get to go on loads of trips, so I want to go on loads of trips. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you'd send him to see um, Cara Malovi play the cello and invite everybody. Right. <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he had a really good expense again. Just like Judy Dench's him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Tom, underappreciated element. Um, I'm going to go with something that we've we've already touched on a little bit, but um, the opening sequence of the film um, mm. is uh, it's kind of ludicrous. In fact, this film is bookended with ludicrous sequences. Right, you've got the um, the stuff with the the helicopter, and then you've got Margaret Thatcher at the end and the parrot. Um, but the pre-title sequence, uh, I think, is is interesting. I, I think the fact that it opens with Bonds visiting his wife's grave. Um, obviously adds a bit of weight to it and then sort of then plays into this idea of seeking revenge um, that the movie has. Um, so I, I like that element. But the part of it that that I do like um, is just 
the way that the helicopter chase is staged um, and the interplay between the stunts, the visual effects, the the the, the miniatures, um, all coming together, and like you know, you can dismiss this pre-title sequence as one of the weaker ones, um, and I think it might be, but the way that that sequence is staged is brilliant. Where you could watch it with the sound off and enjoy just the visual mm-hmm. pace of it. Um, you'd also um, uh, miss that stupid line of, of Blofels as he gets dropped into the <laughs> into the thing. But um, um, but I think it works visually, and I th- again, it comes back to I think John Glenn being you know uh, I don't know if he's the greatest Bond director ever, but he he does know how to shoot and stage action economically. Um, and like Sean said, you know, there are a lot of cutaways back to, to, to Roger sat in a, on the soundstage against a blue screen, but it really works. And I love the photos of Derek Meddings with the helicopter in the miniature gas works. And, and when you see how that all fits together into the sequence, I think it's a great piece of work. I really do. Um, and so that would be my underappreciated. I'm sure it's a very appreciated element by a lot of people, right. but, um, but yeah, that's what I'm going to point out. Th- those those miniature it. shots are seamless. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When you see the model shots with Derek Meddings and team, it's like it's hard to believe where they blend the edges. Um, I'm going to throw in an unappreciated element here. Um, this is to me John Glenn's love letter to Unimagined Secret Service, which mm-hmm. he worked on. And I guess if you get the Bond gig, um, I think David Arnold said this when he got Tomorrow Never Dies. It's like you just throw everything in it because you don't. You never know. This might be your one time. Mm. And I think John Glenn really piles in the the references to majesties um which obviously he was that was his first bond movie i think he worked on and um from the opening visiting tracy's grave motif which was originally designed to potentially bring a new actor into the role if roger didn't sign on but there's echoes of majesties all the way through this from the obvious ones like the bobsled chase to roger wearing a hat when he's skiing all the way through to bond and melina walking through the market and it's echoing that Bond and Tracy sequence. There's a ton of callbacks to Majesties. Um, and I think our good friend of this podcast, Phil Namil Jr., actually paired Majesties with Fioras only as a double header at a film festival. And I think if I'm going to recommend anybody to watch Maj- uh, Fioras only, watch it straight after Majesties, and you'll see so many har- things harking back to that film. And John Glenn does a beautiful job. Okay, um, that leads into trivia. Um, so is there a fact or tidbit about this film? that you find particularly interesting or amusing? I've got a silly one to kick off with, um, but how the code on the identigraph plays, nobody does it better. Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's just so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. And they didn't do the same joke in Moonraker as well, but with um, Close Encounters. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But they didn't have to pay anybody for this one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. That's a silly one to kick things off with. Good shout. I wonder how many people's bank pin numbers that are Bond fans are like codes that Bond presses on doors <laughs> over the years. Yeah, no. there's, a, there's someone out there sweating now that's like, oh no, they <laughs> they rumble, mate. <laughs> okay. Luella or Sean, a little trivia tidbit. Sorry, I'm not sure. <laughs> Just by pure accident, um, one of my bank accounts randomly, completely, 
uh, ends in 007 and that was probably <laughs> action and I discovered this quite recently when my husband looked here he was like oh it's got 007 on the end and I was like what okay then oh that's cool <laughs> anyway um I don't know I don't know if it, you know in terms of trivia I don't know how much this is trivia but just thinking about it you know it's the first film isn't it without M being present in it um and the mm. scene that you know, Q appears as the Orthodox priest uh, was actually written for M. So, you know, it's quite yeah. sad in a way relating to Bernard Lee, um, but it's just a bit of trivia. You know, they, they wanted him to be in the film and unfortunately he was uh, unable to, to complete his path or, you know, so, um, but I just find that quite interesting as a film that makes it a little bit different from other Bond films. That's true. It absolutely does. It's just hard to imagine Bernard Lee, you know, peeling off the moustache with his orthodox costume on. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? Sean, what have you got um, for us? Okay, uh, well, mine's te- I guess it's technically not trivia for this film, but kind of is. Um, and most people will probably already be aware of it, but I want to highlight the Oscars performance um, of, oh, no. of, of For Your yes. Eyes Only from 1982, which if anyone hasn't seen, please Google it. Please have a watch. It's on YouTube. Um, Richard Keel's in it. It's the last appearance of Harold Sakata. Yeah. yeah. And it is just the most outlandish and outrageous thing. I think they, they, if anyone who watched the Oscars this year will have known they played a 60th anniversary montage, this is in every single way better than that could be because it is a, it is a, it is a performance with choreographers, uh, a wild car, villains. There's a stuffed cat. Um, lasers Sheena Easton comes on and she's singing for your eyes only um, and then a dancer sweeps away and they fly off in a rocket actually there on the stage it's got a massive set it is just it's in it, it really feels at odds with for your eyes only because it's everything the film for your eyes only isn't but it is bonkers and crazy and I love it it's so camp it's wonderful um, and yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And I first became aware when I was working with Mark Edlitz on his book. Um, I was going to say, Lost Adventures. he has a and chapter he, on it. Yes, and he interviewed the guy who was originally meant to be playing James Bond in that sequence. Um, but then I think he broke his arm or his leg or he did. He had sustained an injury during rehearsal. So then didn't get to perform as Bond. And one of the like um, understudy choreographers came in and stepped in. Um, to whisk Sheena Easton away in the rocket. But honestly, they're all in orange jumpsuits. It's 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 great. It's Richard Keel's just there watching over the whole thing the whole time. Honestly, fantastic. Um, and in some ways, better than the movie. <laughs> that, uh, I, I, would, I really, I would love to see that in a cinema, just that sequence. It does smack of like the end of a Broadway show or like if you were at Universal Studios mm-hmm. or something, right? And that would yeah. be the performance to cap off whatever it was that you were watching. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild to me that out of all the Bond films, For Your Eyes Only is the one you pick to be musical. Great. Uh, yeah, link in the description if you have not seen it. <laughs> it's something else. Um, Can I have a, a serious one? Yes. Is that okay? Um, is this the first James Bond film where the villain is played by an actor who has been considered to play James Bond? For first but not the last, right? No, not the last. I think the only other example before this is possibly Robert Shaw, but I don't know how seriously they looked at Robert Shaw as Bond. Um, and 
was Christopher Lee ever considered for Bond? I don't think so, but I don't um, think seriously. But that was the whole. Oh, I mean, Fleming's cousin thing. It's like yeah. I, I don't buy into <laughs> that. Cubby Broccoli, Harry Sotsman were like, oh yeah, that's why you should be Bond. But um, but I think he definitely auditioned to play Bond for Live and yes. Let Die because he talks about it at length. Um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And I think is it, he's supposed to be older than Roger Moore in this, but he's but not. He's not. <laughs> no. um, and then obviously other ones that later did it, Sean Bean and Toby Stevens. Did he, was he considered for Bond at all? Or? I don't know, uh, but he's played Bond more yeah. than Daniel Craig. Yeah. <laughs> I know that... Um... I knew that uh, Robert Shaw was uh, considered um, before Doctor No for James ah, Bond. Right. So he was seriously considered. Yeah, there's a, a memo in the um, United Artists papers at Wisconsin Madison um, that's sent between um, United Artists and um, Broccoli and Saltzman, uh, where they have effectively watched The Valiant and they don't think that Robert Shaw's quite right for the role, but they want to see him in another film where he's not wearing a military uniform. But they are seriously considering him to play James Bond. Mm. Ah, so we could tweak your trivia, Tom, to say the first one that tested for Bond. Yeah, I'll take that. I mean, it's, it's a rare example as well, isn't it, of, of where, when it's happened. Um um, but I don't know. I, when you see Julian Glover in this, I think you can see like he's quite suave. I think he could have done it. Um, we got Roger, and yeah. the rest is history. But Sean, when we we, we talked about the Doctor Who overlaps of um, Yonif twice a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. I mean, I do want to do the supercut of Julian Glover peeling off his face to be Scarroff <laughs> in Furies only as the reveal of the villain. Um, that would be something. He, he, he's just running around writing, "This is a fake" on the back of him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a deep Doctor Who joke for anyone. It is. Yes. Okay, folks. So uh, we don't ask for numerical rankings on this show because that's mean. Um, but we are going to ask for uh, is Fiora's only in the top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier of your Bond watching? And why? How about we go with you, Tom? Because I think I know your feelings on this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, for me, I think for your eyes only is uh, got another analogy for you, but I think it's sort of um, it's a baked potato sort of James Bond film. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's if you know you're having baked potato for dinner, you know, you know it's it's gonna it's gonna fill the hole, it's gonna nourish you. You're not that excited about it. That's for your eyes only for me. (laughs) It's a baked potato bond. I'll get something from it, but sort of begrudgingly. I, I I don't mind it. I, technically, it's decent. You know, I think like the the technical elements are, are, to it are are really good. But there's just something, uh, just something lacking to it that I find uh, find hard to vibe with. And it's um, a, a lack of gloss and pizzazz. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I I I, mean, I love Roger Moore's um, first. This is his. What is his? Is is this is his fifth one? Um, so I love the ones that come before it, um, but I feel this is where Roger Moore's era be- starts to become a bit more pedestrian. Um, it sort of lacks the uh, it lacks the glamour that I want from Roger Moore's Bond era. I think, and for that reason, I would say it's sort of lower middle tier for me. Um, I think there's very few Bond films that are bottom tier. To be honest, um, 
so I would say lower middle. Okay. Um, you, you should uh, program up the Oscars performance when you're going to watch For Your Eyes Only, and then that's like <laughs> the beans and cheese on your baked potato. <laughs> bacon, the bits. bacon bits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he wants to be brave and go second. Yeah, so um, on a previous podcast, I, I voted, you know, you moved twice as, as Bond here. Uh, and technically, I probably should vote your eyes only as bottom tier but i'm going to give it middle tier on the basis that i think connery and his bomb films are better um so i would have expected better for connery but i reckon this is middle tier for roger moore and i am being rather tongue-in-cheek there um with his films but yeah um i like the uh, baked potato analogy uh, <laughs> i think i think that's a very good one um does what it says on the tin it comes back down to earth after the wonderful and rather beautiful Moonmaker and indeed the spy who loved me. Um, but we're not quite at the stage of, of as much as I love Roger Moore where he needs to wear, you know, I don't know, eight inches thick of makeup um, compared <laughs> to all the other people around him. Fair point. Okay. So we've had bottom, middle and Sean. What oh, are you going to do? I still hate this question, James. Um, I, I think it's, it's there. It's... <sighs> You, I, I'm, I'm with Tom. It's kind of yeah, bottom, middle. It, it's not bad. I, I, I think there's some great stuff in there, but it's kind of just. I really have to be in the mood to stick for your eyes only on. But then when I watch it, I'm entertained in a way. I don't know. It, yeah, bottom, middle. It, it's, it's the fact that it's placed in between Moonraker and Octopussy, which for me are two top tier movies not just bond movies two top tier brilliant movies uh and this one's kind of just in the middle just there like i say if it's on tv i don't know if it's more than halfway through i probably wouldn't carry on watching it but if it's nearer the start i probably would sit down with it so yeah bottom mid baked potato bomb. fair enough baked potato bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good stuff how about, how about you okay. James? Well, um, I have an interesting relationship with this movie because as a kid, I hated it. Well, I didn't hate it. I just never was interested in watching it as a young Bond fan because of the pace. And as you say, it's ITV Bond. Um, but compared to the spectacle of some of the other movies. Um, but interestingly, in the States, when after Roger passed and they had their memorial screening, in the States, they chose to do The Spy Love Me and Furies Only as the two movies of the double header that you could go see on the big screen again. I thought that at the time, that was an odd choice. Um, and I was in Burbank in California at a, one of at the double header screening, and it was filled with, as you'd expect, like studio and movie people, just Bond fans who work in the industry. And chatting to them on the way out, it was the spy love me was kind of meh because it was just like Bond goes A to B to C to D, and there's no real, you know, it was kind of a by the numbers to them film. But everybody really liked Fiora's Only. Wow. A lot of them hadn't seen it very much. Um, and so the audience reception was really interesting. And it's, it's grown on me, um, especially as Majesties is my favorite Bond film of all time. Mm -hmm. So I see this as the spiritual kind of 80s version of Majesties a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, so it's gone up. But, it would, but there's so many great films in the series that it would still be in the middle for me. Um, but it's, it's, I've done a 180 on this film over my Bond fandom. 
Um, so thank you, Sean, Luella, and Tom. And if you're listening to this the week this episode comes out in the UK, Fiora's Only is back on the big screen at a cinema, hopefully near you. Um, and as we mentioned during the episode, um, really recommend Watch Majesties before you go see Fiora's Only. Um, you might see it in a different light. Um, so with that, thank you very much, Sean, Luella, and Tom. And we'll see you next week for Octopussy. Bye for now. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye.